Good evening, ma'am. Hey, y'all. What can I do you for? Can I have a glass of Chardonnay? I'm sorry, darling. We don't serve that here. Any Merlot? I'm pretty sure you don't want these feet going nowhere near them grapes. Alrighty, how about a craft beer? Oh yeah, we got plenty of craft beer. Which one you want? No, not craft beer. Craft beer. Oh, no, hell no. I'm, I'm pretty sure the bar down the street serves that. Okay, well, what do you serve? I'm glad you asked. Welcome to the Backwoods Barcast. We serve up moonshine, cheap beer, bottom shelf liquor, and stories even harder to swallow. Join Nick and Brittany and the janitor Stephen as we discuss southeastern mysteries and mayhem, including but not limited to UFOs, true crime, the paranormal, and much more. So knock four times, grab a stool, let the bar talk commence, and as always, drink more beer. Welcome back to The Woods, a podcast about the mysterious, the legendary, and the plain weird. Because you never know what you're going to find in the woods. I'm Sandy. (laughs) I'm Angela. I'm Oscar. Why are you guys so nervous? We've done this before. Angela, this is your third time on the show. It's okay. This is only my second. I'm still getting used to it. (laughs) Um, Anyway, yeah, Shazne's still not here. Please continue to send her your love. And good vibes. So, how was your week? Today? Oh my god, you remembered. <laughs> uh, my week. I don't remember it, so I guess it was okay. Yeah, so wow, you have really like, bad memory. Weird. Yeah, how was your week? Anything. You don't remember? Oscar, how was your week? Um, yeah. Oh, what 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 so kind weird. of what kind of answer is that? I I don't even know what what day is it. Sunday? It's Sunday. Yeah, today is Sunday. This episode comes out tomorrow. I don't even know what I did yesterday. No, we went to Valley Village. Oh, we did go to Valley Village yesterday. Yesterday, I went to boxing. Oh, yeah. Oscar, anything else you'd like to share about your week? No. Are you sure? Mm -hmm. No one you want to shout out through the internet? Whoa. (laughs) You little fishy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, do you want to... (laughs) Say no, something. No one say. You can, you just, can just say, say hello. Hi. Thanks. It's weird. <laughs> okay, let's just get on with the story, please. Anyways, to summarize, Oscar got a package, and he's very thankful for said package. I thought it was for me, because I'm waiting for a package for my good friend Megan. I was very disappointed when it wasn't for me. But I never anyway. get mail. I like the package. Well, but thank you. I thought you had a pen pal. Yeah, I just don't write her back. Well, you should write her back. <laughs> Anyways, so... I think it's just kind of sketchy. Okay. Um, <laughs> Angela, do you want to introduce the topic? Um, uh, we will be reading stories from books. Yes, yeah, so um, kind of like last week, except we all have physical books in our hands, and we are going to be reading... From them, I'm going to be reading from Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan by Joanne uh, Christensen. I'm going to be reading Murder and Mayhem, Canadian Stories by Don Sutherland. And I'll be reading Haunted Eastern Shore by Mindy Burgoyne. I don't know if that's Burgoyne. how you guys. I don't know if that's Burgoyne. how you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I can go first. I do want to say, I got this ghost story book in a used bookstore because as you know i'm trying to connect collect all these ghost story books and the reason i picked this specific one is because there is a note at the front and i'll read it to you it says linda merry christmas thought you might like this since hold on sincerely sincerely alice and then it is signed 1996 which is the year i was born and there was a newer copy there but this personalization that's cool is what made me pick up maybe it's haunted i don't know anyway so so the first story i want to read to you is actually a story i talked about last episode and i found 
the story, and I'm going to read it to you. This is called Toddler Haunts Duplex. <laughs> that sounds kind of lame, I feel like. Okay, well, I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> <clears throat> if Debbie had not been such a particular housekeeper, it might have taken her longer to realize that the basement suite she moved into was haunted. But in her own words, everything has its place in Debbie's house. So when things were frequently out of place, she noticed. When I first moved in, I hardly spent any time there, Debbie admits. But it seemed that every day when she returned to her apartment, something was out of order. Once after being away for a weekend, Debbie came home to a frustratingly large mess. Cassette tapes that had been carefully filed were randomly mixed. All the lights in the house had been unplugged and there was sticky juice spilled on the kitchen floor. Irritated, she asked her upstairs neighbors and friends, Gary and Lori, about the incident. Not to be rude, Debbie said, but do you let your kids play down here when I'm gone? They looked at each other blankly, confused by the question. It seems Debbie had the only key. Also, like, how fucking rude if you're letting your kids play in someone else's apartment. Is this the one where they had, like, a car crash outside? Mm -hmm. I think so, yeah. At least I think that's what I remember. Yeah, I talked about it last time. Yeah, you did. Yeah. So I found it, and I wanted yeah, to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when Debbie began spending more time in the apartment, strange things began to happen right before her eyes. Lights would switch on and off by themselves. The television would come on in the middle of the night. A hot water tap that could only be turned on with pliers would start running on its own. And every time Debbie would sit down to read, she'd feel someone's icy breath on her shoulder. After a while, she dreaded going home because she never knew what was going to happen. (laughs) Lori and Gary were beginning to notice some out-of-the-ordinary occurrences as well. There would be audible footsteps and water running in the basement suite when they knew Debbie wasn't home. And one night, they switched off the television and lights at about 1 o'clock before retiring. Just as they were drifting off to sleep, however, they were startled by noises in the living room. Gary went out there, expecting to confront a burglar, and found the TV had been turned back on. One night, after witnessing a flurry of paranormal activity, the three friends desperately appealed to the police for help. The only assistance found there was a suggestion to call the priest. (laughs) That is so funny. We never did, said Lori, acknowledging the difficulty of finding reputable help in that situation. I mean, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Ha ha ha! (laughs) (laughs) Because of the mischievous nature of many of the incidents, Debbie had always had a hunch the child, or the the ghost was a child. (laughs) I was going to say that the child was a ghost. One afternoon, frustrated with the flashing lights and cold spots in her apartment, she went upstairs to share her theory. Was there ever a child who died in this place, she asked. I just feel like that... It's a little kid who's stuck between here and there. Gary and Lori had a friend sitting at the kitchen table one day. He suddenly went white. It turned out that the man's two-year-old niece had been struck and killed by a car in front of the duplex years before. The toddler's family had lived in the basement suite that Debbie now occupied. Right. <laughs> Angel's face. Somewhat bolstered by the knowledge, Debbie went downstairs to talk to the ghost. Don't do this to me, she demanded. I know who you are and I'm not afraid of you. The apartment was calmer for a short period after that. The truth was, though, that Debbie was still quite afraid. She found it difficult to be brave for her 12-year-old daughter when inside. She herself was terrified of the force that occupied her home. Debbie wasn't the only person who sensed that this could be a very negative and frightening entity. She has relatives who are native and, according to Debbie, more sensitive in spiritual matters. Many of them wouldn't set foot in her home. One uncle mustered the courage to visit twice, then firmly refused to return. He later confided in Debbie that he felt distinctly unwelcome by the spirit. There were the smells too, said Debbie. Sudden scents of either lilac or burnt toast. They were so strong they could make me nauseous. There were no lilac trees close to the duplex, and Debbie never wore perfume. As for the burnt toast... The last time she smelt it was just before she moved, and her toaster had been packed away for three days. Could it have been from upstairs? Not likely. Lori and Gary were away, Debbie explained. Debbie was able to explain away those smells for a while. 
She was pregnant when, while she lived in the duplex and thought that perhaps they were some sort of odd symptom. That was later disproved. While her pregnancy didn't cause the perception of the smells, it did seem to affect the amount of paranormal activity that happened. It increased steadily as her pregnancy progressed. She was facing a difficult personal decision with this pregnancy. She was in the process of a divorce and her soon-to-be ex-husband was the father of the child. She had a promising future with a wonderful new man she had met, but wondered how he would accept the baby. She considered giving it up for adoption to give everyone a clean start, but it was a wrenching decision. Debbie had, earlier in life, given a baby to adoptive parents and she was and she always kept a picture of this newborn infant on the wall. While she struggled with her problem, the baby's picture kept falling off the wall. Stubbornly, Debbie kept putting it back, each time with, with a more formidable nail. Pretty soon, she said, I was using a spike to keep it up there, but the picture continued to fall. Eventually, Debbie chose to keep her baby, no matter what the consequences. From that point on, the other child's photo stayed put with a thumbtack. Once the baby was born, Debbie always had the sensation of being watched. The spirit seemed to be fascinated with the baby, too, and paid a great deal of attention to it. The automatic swing Debbie had for her newborn would switch on and off by itself, and Debbie swears that her baby could see the presence that was invisible to her. The infant would coo and talk continuously when by herself. When Debbie held her daughter and tried to get her attention, the daughter always seemed to be focusing on something just behind her mother's left shoulder. After they left the duplex, however, the baby would always make eye contact. It was one particularly disturbing incident that cemented Debbie's decision to move. She was in the living room one day while her baby napped in the bedroom. Suddenly, there was a loud, continuous banging noise, and Debbie ran, Debbie <laughs> ran to investigate. What she saw will, forever, will stay with her forever. The big teddy bear that she had put in the in bed with her daughter was being slammed repeatedly <laughs> against the side of the crib. What? The baby's fingers were curled around the stuffed animal's foot, but she could hardly be held responsible. She was only two weeks old at the time. Do oh you imagine? An infant with neither the strength nor physical skills to commit such an act. Debbie knew then that for the safety of her baby and her older daughter, she had to leave the duplex. Things really started acting up then, she said. Every time Debbie would begin packing, she'd be overwhelmed by a feeling of suffocation and be forced to stop. She felt that the ghosts would become furious over their leaving. Once she started to move the furniture out of the suite, Debbie refused to sleep there at night, fearing the spirit would be angry enough to kill the baby. On the first night in her new home, however, there was another scare. I could see these flashing lights and I was like, oh no, not again. Happily, the phenomenon was caused by nothing more ghostly than a flashlight with a short in its wiring. Lori and Gary chose to move out of the duplex at the same time. Now Debbie is happily remarried and both couples remain close friends and live within a short walk of each other. And the duplex they used to share. They've gone through a lot of tenants since we left, observes Debbie, and adds that she still has to walk past her home, old home occasionally. How does it make her feel? It gives me the creeps. An understatement, if ever there was one. Okay, so that was the story of a toddler haunting a duplex. Is that the duplex? Yeah. It's in Saskatoon. Bruh. Okay. Thoughts? Uh, pretty wild, man. Okay. <laughs> Alright. Pretty wild. Your turn, Angela. What's the name of your story? Um, the story I'm reading is called The Hanging Tree. Yeah. Okay. Ghostly sightings and chilling occurrences surrounding the places where hangings have taken place aren't uncommon. In fact, these eerie manifestations have done their part in keeping the memories of long-ago events alive. Such was the case in the story of Peter Cartel. The history of the Court of Chancery in Nova Scotia recounts how Peter Cartel stabbed Abraham Goodside along with two other men. All four men worked abroad the immigrant ship. Beaufort, which had set anchor only days before in a large cove outside of what would become the city of Sydney, Nova Scotia. There are no details explaining what the argument was about, but Goodside received a long gash in the altercation. He died instantly and Cartel was arrested for his murder. A document published by Acadia, Acadia University 
in Nova Scotia described how a cartel was tried in an empty warehouse on the waterfront two days after Goodside's murder. A jury of his peers heard cartel's case and on August 31st, 1749, found him guilty. Historical sources differ somewhat as to the date cartel was hanged. Some suggest the man met his fate on September 2nd, while others report it was on September 13th. In any case, in keeping with the tradition of the day, a large tree was chosen to, to serve as a gallows. The hangman's noose was tossed over a sturdy branch of the tree, which stood where generations later Bedford Road and George Street would intercept. In this case, cartel in this spot, cartel breath breathed. <laughs> in this spot, cartel breathed his last. The case surrounding cartel's murder, conviction, and subsequent ex- execution went down in history as the first order of business for the first general court established in the new colony. But cartel was not the last criminal whose case was heard by this new court nor was he the only convicted criminal sentenced to hang from the makeshift gallows. What what became known as a hanging tree was used for, for more than a decade before it was cut down in 1763. The site where this bit of legal history occurred looks nothing like it did back in the mid-1700s. However, echoes of those early years still appear from time to time. Local lore suggests that on certain nights, when the moon is spilling just the right amount, you can see the body of a young man hanging by his neck and swinging in the breeze near the George Street intersection, where the hanging tree had been located. Could this be the ghost of, Be- of Peter Cartel, or could it belong to one of the other convicted criminals who died while dangling from the limbs of that tree? The junction of George Street and Bedford Row is just one of the many stops during the Ghosts and Legends of Historic Sydney tour. If you're ever visiting the area, you may want to go for an evening stroll, especially if there's if there happens to be a full moon. You can catch a glimpse for yourself. Ooh, I love ghost tours. I'm, okay, let's go to that. That's cool. Yeah. I'm out of breath from just reading. That kind of reminds me of um, Conjuring. You know how they have that person hanging on a tree in the... In the, like, cover? Yeah. Yeah, it's really hot in here. Yeah, it is. <sighs> I'm like wheezing. I need my inhaler. Um, all right, Oscar. Oh. Angela and Oscar were born in the Eastern Shore, so this is a wow. yeah, a great Canada though. No, this is the in Eastern East. Shore of like the Chesapeake Bay area. This is where yeah, where they were born. My my old friend sent me this book, so thank you, thank you, Dylan. You all know Dylan. Anyways, Oscar, take it away. Okay, so my story is called. Austin Murder Farm. Ooh. On February 27th, 1851, near the small village of Georgetown Crossroads, now Galena, four fiendish perpetrators invaded the Cosden home and bru- brutally murdered four people and injured three in a death-dealing orgy, according to <laughs> Kent Con- County News. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, when I picked these out, I did not read them. I was just like, that one's short. Here, you read it. Okay, anyways, I am interested. Wow. I am here for it. All right, let's go. Oh, shut up. It was, and still is, the only mass murder in nearly 400 years of Kent County history. The crime began early one Thursday evening as the Cosden family sat sipping tea after dinner. It ended within an hour, with bodies strewn around the house and the property riddled with gunshot. Cosden family was murdered, shot, stabbed, bludgeoned, and burned. Two escaped the horror and ran for help. Four lived to recount the gory details. Ooh, tell us. At the time of the murders, the Cosden Farm house and property were known as Moody Farm. Robert Moody purchased the property and built a house on it in 1798. The dwelling was simple, a two-story brick farm-style structure built over a basement. Strangely enough, Robert Moody had the house built a quarter mile off the existing road. This was not the norm at the time. Most houses were built close to the road for for easy access. Additionally, he built the house with its doorways facing south, away from the road, leaving the main entrances visually obscured from neighbors and passerby. The house sat about one and a half miles east of Galena, uh, just south to the Safaraz River. It was demolished in 2008, having fallen into grave despair. 
and it shows a picture of it. We'll post it to the Instagram. William Cosdan, a tenant farmer, was leasing the property from Mr. James Woodland, who had acquired the farm from the Moody family. In 1851, there were at least seven people in the Cosdan household living in the two-bedroom farmhouse. They were Mr. William Cosden and his wife, Mary Ann Webster Cosden. Their two children, Mary Catherine, age four, and a four-month-old infant son. Mr. Cosden's sister, Amanda Cosden, age 17, and Mrs. Cosden's sister and brother, Rebecca Webster, age 17, and Dixon Webster, age 14. In addition, the Cosden had an African-American servant woman. On that faded Thursday evening in February, the Cosden family family was settling down after dinner. Mr. Cosden was drinking his tea facing the fireplace in the company of Mrs. Cosden and his sister, Amanda. Cosden's infant son was asleep in his cradle tucked under a table. Dixon Webster, the servant woman and an African-American teenage boy, perhaps the servant woman's son, were in the kitchen. Mrs. Cosden's sister, Rebecca, had been ill and was confined to bed upstairs in one of the two bedrooms. Mary Catherine, the Cosden's four-year-old daughter, was also upstairs, probably asleep in the other bedroom. Somewhere between 6 and 7 o'clock, four white men came onto the Cosden property. Four white men. <laughs> Continue. Um, four white men came onto the Cosden property with the intention of robbing what they thought was the Caleb's Griffiths house, where farm sale had netted in excess of $3,000 the week before. The robbers suspected that the profits were still held in the house. Griffith's house was in Kent County, about two and a half miles from the Cosden. The carnage began when one of the robbers pointed his musket through a window and shot Mr. Cosden in the head. As soon as Mr. Cosden was shot, Dickinson and the African-American boy fled to the town to get help and escape the murder, murder rampage uninjured. The four perpetrators beat down the door, entered the house, and shot Amanda Cosden, who was sitting at the table. Then... One of them shot the servant woman in the face. Mrs. Cosden was also shot. She was able to flee out the front door. The fiends hunted her down and stabbed her to death. Jeez. It was later discovered that Amanda Cosden also had stab wounds. Upon hearing the ruckus downstairs, Rebecca Webster ran to a bedroom closet to hide. The four-year-old Mary Catherine came running into her room, frightened and screaming. Rebecca exited the closet to rescue Mary Catherine just as one of the asylums came into the room. The girls jumped onto the bed and Rebecca pleaded for their lives, stating she had money in the trunk. The assailant promptly shot her and then emptied the trunk, obtaining $4 and an overcoat. <laughs> he then shot both at both girls who were still on the bed. The fire from the gunshot set the quilt ablaze. The two wounded girls held each other on the burning bed. At this time, Mr. Cosden was still alive. He managed to crawl under the table where his infant son, wait, where his infant son still lay in his cradle. To quiet the child, he gently rocked the cradle. The assailants discovered Mr. Cosden was still alive and shot him again, stabbed him, and then stomped on his face. The alarm had been summoned by the young boys who had escaped the murderous rampage. The robbers evidently stole what they could and fled before help arrived. When neighbors entered the house, Mrs. Cosden and, his, and her sister were dead. Mr. Cosden was still alive and able to talk. He was still under the table, rocking his son's cradle quite. He stated before he died that he did not know his attackers. Rebecca and Mary Catherine were still alive, though Rebecca died of the wounds two days later. Young Mary Catherine recovered, as did the servant woman. The infant son died three months after the murders. No one ever recorded the cause of death. Within a week, arrests were made. One of the perpetrators, Stephen Shaw, turned state's evidence against three men who claimed were the other sons, Nicholas Murphy, Abraham Taylor, and William Shelton. Stephen Shaw was not tried, but the three men he named were tried, convicted, and hanged. All three clung to assertions that they were innocent right up to the final moments of execution. Abraham Taylor's last words were that his life had been sworn away by Stephen Shaw and that he was innocent. The cold atheist, William Shelton, who was named by Shaw as the murder of Rebecca Webster and Amanda Cosden, as well as the shooter and abuser of the four-year-old Mary Catherine Cosden, showed no remorse and made pub no public comment. Nicholas Murphy claimed that he was at home in bed at the time of the murders. Murphy wept and exclaimed, Murders, now do your work. But bear in mind that the 
cannot hang murder. The gallows were placed on raised ground near their mills, uh, about one mile from, the, from Chestertown. It was an elevated area with at least half a mile view in every direction. Newspapers reported that thousands attended the hangings on August 8, 1851. Troops were called in to maintain order. The convicted men were led to the gallows, hoods were placed over their heads, and the ropes put round their necks. As the floor gave way, Taylor and Shelton dropped and died quickly. But Murphy's rope broke, and he and though he fell twelve feet and his throat was mashed and lacerated, he did not die. As he rose with some assistance, he passed the hanging bodies of his dead consorts and exclaimed, My God, two innocent men sacrificed. Murphy was re-escorted re to the gallows and dropped again. Though the rope and knots were secure, newspaper reports state that he took nearly 11 minutes to expire after being hanged the second time. Imagine just going through that. Eleven <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Because oh. usually what's supposed to happen is that your neck's supposed to break and it's supposed to kill you instantly. Mm -hmm. But otherwise you're just gonna choke for it takes about like fifteen minutes. Dang. So anyways. <laughs> um when a crime at crime as a sen sensational as the cause and murder occurs, distortion of the truths surface naturally. Some newspapers, in particular an article written by Bill Usilton for the Kent County News shortly after the murders claimed that the murderers were African American. This is untrue. All Classic. four men, all four men charged, and even the additional men who were arrested on suspicion and later set free were Caucasian. Wait, I just thought of something. What? If it took eleven minutes for him for him to die, what were all the people doing? Were they <laughs> just watching, they were just for watching him for 11 minutes? Like, people back then were fucked up, okay? Like, they'd be like, oh, what should we do today? Oh, I know, let's take the kids to an execution. So they probably stood there for 11 minutes just watching this watch person flail. Why? That's my news, though. What? <laughs> just saying. That's madness. <laughs> what? You guys don't. You guys aren't intellectuals. Oh, sorry. Did you even say words the first time? I wait, said wait, that's wait. madness, love. Oh. oh. <laughs> that's madness, love. <laughs> <laughs> you guys need to. I don't know. You need wild. to actually speak words. I was saying word. I was saying that's madness, love. Well. Me and Nana couldn't understand you. Whatever. <laughs> okay, Oscar, continue. You guys looked story. at me like I was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I understand what you had said. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, um, this has been proven by constant genealogist Sue Thompson with unwavering evidence. Various local accounts orally passed through generations claim that a blood stain more prominent when rained would appear on the front door of the Cosden house for years and years after the murder. Others claims have been made that the blood on the floor could never be removed. Since the Cosdens were killed, the property has changed hands numerous times, with six to eight sub subsequent families occupying the place. Some accounts of residents and visitors state that when being on the Cosden murder farm, one got, one got the feeling that he or she was being watched. On other accounts, directly from occupants, refute those claims. Mrs. Thompson and the cos, the Cosden genealogist, told me that she had been in the house and photographed it. Bullet holes, some with musket balls intact, were still lodged in the in the mantel and over a doorway. Another relative gave an oral gave oral testimony that he remembered bullet holes in the walls and a door riddled with bullet holes that was later removed. There are a few interesting points associated with the Cosden property. One is that after the murders, the house and properties were referred to as the Cosden Murder Farm. This name stuck and even appeared on deeds associated with properties in subsequent years. It was perfectly natural for Kent County locals to refer to the property as the Cosden Murder Farm, just as they might say the Old Moody Farm. The last family who lived on the farm, having 
having owned it for 25 years, states, in that whole time we owned the farm, it was very hard to have things delivered there with just giving people simple directions. You had to say the cause didn't murder farm or they didn't or they wouldn't know where to take the supplies. This family sold the house on February 27, 2002, the 151st anniversary of the murders. It was the last time the house would be sold. The purchasing owners had demolished it in 2008. Some 40 years after the horrific crime, a relative of, of the murdered cousin, Thomas Cousin of Chestertown, ser served as his first mate on a schooner operated by Captain Leonard Oz of Brisfield. In 1893, Cousin became very ill and Taz had put him on an, in an island hospital in Antigua to recover. Weeks later, Taz and his crew encountered a hurricane. The crew told Taz that the old first mate, Taz, had helped him during the storm. But Taz knew that Cousin was in the hospital at the time. The hospital where Taz brought Cousin has a record of Cousin dying on the same day, and he allegedly assisted the crew during the storm. Another twist in the Cousin family chain is a distant relative who rose to fiendish fame in the 20th century. century. William Earl Cousin Jr. was found not guilty by reason of insanity for the rape and murder of a Maryland girl in, eight, in 1967. He was incarcerated for three to four years and then released. He went to Tumwater, Washington, near Seattle, to work in a truck stop owned by his father. He was later found guilty of the 1973 murder of Catherine Devine, but not until 2002 when the DNA evidence linked him to the, linked him to the crime. Up until then, then Mrs. Devine's murder has been, had been attributed to the serial killer Ted Bundy. Mary Catherine Coslin, the four-year-old who survived the Coslin murder rampage, went to live with the relatives who were suspected to be unkind to her. She was eventually rele relegated to a boarding school. She married and moved to a city in Iowa where she lived for 64 years before dying at the age of 90. Not the remains of the Coslin farmhouse and scene of the gruesome murders. The current owners have told the Kent County zoning office that they intended to build a new home in the same location, uh, in the same location in which the farmhouse stood. For now, the site is vacant. Wow, that was intense. That, that was, was wild. That was long. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't know why I thought it was short. I might have just been like, "Ooh, murder farm." They can read that. <laughs> I liked it though. It was yeah, good. that was good. Okay. Um, did it say what part of the Chesapeake that was in? Mm-hmm. I think it says at the beginning of the story. In Kent County. So if you're ever in Kent County, well, I mean, it's not Where is anymore. Kent County? Somewhere in the Chesapeake, I don't know. What's the Chesapeake? Eastern Shore. I don't know. What that it's is. like the che like there's the Chesapeake Bay, which is like kind of like the Hudson's Bay, except the Chesapeake. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what okay, you're talking well, about. It was where you were born. That's the Chesapeake. Oh. Okay. I don't even. Okay. <laughs> so I picked this one because it reminded me of Oscar. Ooh. Lame. So this is <laughs> this is called an unseen playmate. Leslie Charlton remembers the summer of 1978 very well, not because she was getting ready to return to school as a cool grade six student. <laughs> Dang. Although she was. Uh. Not because she had begun to notice boys as more than just annoyances. Boys? Although boys. she had. Leslie oh, remembers that what? summer for another reason. An unexplainable one. Summer vacation for Leslie and her friends meant falling into a comfortable routine. The days were spent hanging around the house, seeking refuge from the Regina heat, Waiting for the Dicky D man, as Leslie puts it. I have no idea what the fuck that is. <laughs> Evenings were unfailingly devoted to swing tag, a favorite game in the neighborhood. Have you guys played swing tag? Never heard of it. Well, Leslie explains swing tag as being a creative variation of the tag you're game that everyone grew up with. Four people are on the swings and are not allowed to touch their feet to the ground. The fifth person is it, and is forced to stay outside an imaginary boundary drawn around the poles of the swing set. Whoever is it has to tag one of the players without crossing the boundary. 
to gain a turn on the swing. From How grace, does that even work? Okay, so, like, there's a boundary that you can't go past the poles, but when they're swinging, you have to try to tag them. Mm. Um, Just don't swing. <laughs> from grade one to grade seven, we did that all summer, Leslie said, adding that they always played at the school playground across the street from her mother's house. That the evening that Leslie remembers so well had offered no relief from the oppressive heat of the day. The swing tag game lasted until after sunset, and even then, the air remained heavy and still. Leslie was on one of the middle swings, tucking her feet in carefully so as not to be tagged when she noticed something unusual. In the next section of the swing structure, one of the deserted swings was beginning to move back and forth not waving or swaying a bit, but moving deliberately back and forth and gaining more weight with every pass. The chains hung taut and stayed parallel. The canvas seat appeared to be weighed down. The swing moved higher and higher, impossibly on its own. Most interestingly, the vacant swings on either side of it remained perfectly still, apparently unaffected by the invisible force. I was the first one to say anything, said Leslie, I stopped, put my feet on the ground, and said, well, I probably swore, she admitted, because we all swore at the time and at that age. But I said, did anyone else see that? The guy right beside me said he saw it too. Then we all turned and watched this this thing swinging back and forth by itself. Uh, just as it began gradually, the swing slowed itself before coming to a complete stop. The group continued to watch it intently, but no one dared go near it. What they did do was talk about what happened. We had to talk about something, so we were trying to believe it was some kind of con contraption. We thought someone was behind a car with a piece of fishing line making it go back and forth. <laughs> someone said wind, but there was no way it was wind because all of the rest of the swings were perfectly still. Finally, before leaving the playground, one of the boys mustered enough bravery to walk around the affected swing, checking for wires or strings. There was nothing. The hour was late and the group scattered, everyone eager for the bright, reassuring lights of home. They spoke of the incident later, but only to each other. I didn't even tell my mother until years and years later, said Leslie, because it was just too weird, you know? She still remembers her friend's final consensus after without ordinary causes. We thought some little kid had fallen off the swing and hit his head and died, perished right there in the playground. And what does she think now? I don't know what it was, but I do know it wasn't wind, and I know that it wasn't someone playing a trick. For all anyone does know, there's just a lonely little spirit in a deserted Regina playground waiting for someone to start another lively game of swing tag. That is so sad. It's Regina. <laughs> so yeah, that was the story of an unseen playmate. Oh, poor kid. He just wanted to have some fun. All right, Angela, what's what do you got for us? <laughs> My next story, it's called It's Always Best to Pay Your Dues. Remnants of Ghost Town stock British Columbia Road sides where years before communities once thrived. These communities were founded around one of the provinces many natural resources. And once those resources dwindled or demanded for or demanded for them seized, industries pulled back production or shut down altogether. Workers had to look elsewhere in town for employment, and if the demand for jobs outweighed their availability, as was often the case, families were forced to move. Take, for example, the three communities of Michael, Natal, and Middletown, tucked away in the southeastern corner of the province along Highway 3, not far from the town of Sparwood. The trio of communities was established near the coal mines that in the that in their heyday provided jobs for hundreds of mine workers. Michael was the first of the three locations to flourish after the Crow's Nest Pass Coal Company opened its mine in eighteen ninety nine. By nineteen oh seven the town boasted a population of twelve hundred residents along with the amenities any grown community would need. There were a variety of stories, a hotel and even three story and even a three story nineteen bed hospital, a necessity given the dangers involved in 
coal mining. Workplace accidents weren't uncommon, and some miners lost their lives in the pits. And yet, it isn't. And yet, it isn't the ghost of one of these unfortunate workers that haunted this town, or more particularly, the Michael Hotel. The ghost was a stop. The ghost that established itself in the hotel in the 1930s had a re and refused to leave until the structure, which was one of the town's last remaining buildings, was leveled in 2010, had a far more sinister origin. The Michael Hotel was built of a cast concrete in the late 1920s and served as a place where miners and their families could, could get together and socialize. Erected during Michael's heydays, and was meant to act as a community center of all sorts. Although it fulfilled its role as an important part of the community, the hotel didn't prosper to the same extent as the local mines had. Part of the problem was that the single miners who rented rooms, instead of finding permanent more expensive expenses accommodations, frequently skipped out on paying their bills. They simply left the hotel one day and didn't return. This was a particularly troublesome problem during the Great Depression era. In fact, it was such a common occurrence that the hotel's owner decided to take matters into his own hands. He was done with losing money and decided to take drastic measures. No one was going to skip out on his or her bill again and live to tell a tale. Oh my god, did someone get murdered? Okay. I am excited. I mean, you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm intrigued. This is where a young fellow known as known only as George comes into the story. George thought he'd slipped away unnoticed without settling his tab. It is unknown if George had done that kind of thing before, or if he even owned more, more than a day stay. But one thing was certain, he would never skip out on a bill again. When George left the Michael Hotel without paying, the hotel owner pledged to hunt down the delinquent customer and make an example of him. And when he finally found found George, that's exactly what he did. He dragged him back to the hotel under great pros, pro, protest from George, who by then was all, was ready to hand over the cash. Unfortunately for him, that did not satisfy the owner. It is unclear if the hotelier fashioned a makeshift a makeshift gallow on the hotel's front porch. Or if he just picked a sturdy tree at some public location in Michael. Regardless, he strung George up and left him to die. Oh my Jesus. god. <gasps> oh, he wild. Okay. <laughs> the public hanging had the had the desired effect of deterring de deterring other would-be skippers. However, it was George and not the hotel or owner who had the last laugh in the battle of wills. George Spirit, who was soon, who, who was soon seen wandering the halls on the third floor of Michael Hotel, or sitting in a vacant chair near the room he'd stayed in before his death. Visitors to the to the hotel also reported that their candles and or flashlights would flicker or is extinguish when passing that room, and some claimed his spirit would obstruct their way and prevent them from going down the hall. These reports makes one wonder whether the hotel owner accomplished anything by making an example of George other than scaring off customers. George's ghost isn't the only one that's believed to have haunted the Michael Hotel before it was demolished on May 30th, 2010. The spirit of a woman who committed suicide while staying in one of the rooms had has been blamed for the strange sound of running water on the third floor, which makes the phenomenon particularly unsettling it is unsettling is that there's no plumbing on that floor therefore no reasonable explanation can be given that that was crazy that, that took was a really short, quick turn that was like yeah. zero to 100 that was yeah. wild imagine like killing someone for not paying you back it's <laughs> the great depression too like wouldn't you know that they can't pay but i mean yeah i get it like that's aggravating. And but, like, I mean, he ended up paying, though. There yeah. was no reason to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. That was wild. Wow. Like, imagine if people still did that now. <laughs> Just make a gallows on your front porch. Like, this is what you get for not paying off your debt. Oh, my God. That'd be awful. I just imagine the student debt collectors like, all right, Sandy, <laughs> <laughs> it's time to die. 
mean, it'd get you rid of your problems, wouldn't it? Well, not really, because, like, for example, if I died right now, Ian would have to pay off my student loan. So and then Ian would die. And then if Ian died, mom and dad would have to pay them off. Like, but the debt doesn't under, go away when under, you die. You're not underage anymore. It doesn't matter. So, like, the debt doesn't go away. It's put on to the next okay, person. Okay, okay, then mom and dad, who else gets it? They die. You guys? I don't know. What like, if, it's going to keep going. We just... Banks like, are ruthless, and so like, is capitalism, and I hate I it. I feel like that would be a yeah. good way of, like, settling the population of the world. Just killing <laughs> just them. Killing, just killing off people who have debt. I mean, Area that 51. That is not the solution. What's Area 51 have to do with this? <laughs> okay. Okay, you can read your story? Oh, yeah. Okay, come sit so we, we can be closer. Okay. Yeah, we're over here. I'm close enough. Okay. What's your story called? It's called Suicide Bridge. Where is it located? Secretary Dorchester County. Wow. I'm ready to go there. Okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> Suicide Bridge is a two-lane automobile bridge that crosses Cabin Creek just north of the village of Secretary and East New Market in Dorchester County. The locals say that there has been a bridge for vehicles crossing the spot on Cabin Creek since 1888. The original one-lane bridge was made of wood and was primarily used for local uh, village traffic. By 1967, with the proliferation, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, proliferation, proliferation, by 1967, with the proliferation of heavy automobiles and farm equipment, a new two-lane wooden bridge was erected and covered with asphalt. It doesn't make sense that this bridge would be called Suicide Bridge, because it's too low to the ground and the water isn't deep. Some say it's... That at a low tide, a person could leap from the bridge and then stand up in the water. <laughs> but tradition says that there were several, several people who committed suicide from this bridge. Hence, the locals began to refer, refer to it as Suicide Bridge. The name was stuck. Due to a heavy use, a completely rebuilt bridge was put in place in 2005. Today, the bridge gets a good amount of local automobile traffic. Partly due to a popular waterfront restaurant, Suicide Bridge Restaurant. Okay. <laughs> Imagine calling your restaurant Suicide Bridge Restaurant. I mean, Sounds kind of cool. Bro. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> Located at the South Crossing, the restaurant has become a destination for locals throughout the shore, renowned for, uh, for excellent seafood. Seafood, steak, and paddleboat cruises making this grimly named spot on Cabin Creek even more famous throughout the region. That's cool. I want to go there. Yeah, let's go. So weird. Um, the only place where I was able to find historical information on how the bridge got its name was at Suicide Bridge Restaurant. It has the legend printed on its menu. The same information is repeated on its website. And this is the message. The first victim of Suicide Bridge was a postmaster from Herlock, who shot himself and then fell into the water of Cabin Creek. The second victim was a farmer, who, who also shot himself and fell into the swirling waters of Dorchester County Creek. Next was a man who, say, willfully dove off the bridge, while others say he was met with foul play. Pete Moxie, a lifelong resident of the area, was eight or nine years old when it happened. It's the first one I remember, a fellow they called Frog. He was black, short, and stocky. They claimed he jumped off the, he jumped off the bri bridge and hit his head on, on the piling. But the word was going around that there was foul play in it. I don't know, six-year-old Mr. Monkey said. He remembers that, the body, that once the body was found, they put him on a table over there in the picnic area and in an autopsy right out in the open. Mr. Moxie, however, was sent home before the autopsy was performed. Mr. Moxie said he was surprised at how quickly another suicide occurred after the third bridge was built. It was out for six months, then bingo, someone went off. He said, I helped pull that guy out of the water. He had been a long-time employee, employee at the Continental Can in Herlock and was just coming off a long vacation. Instead of going back to work, he drove here, parked his car, and jumped off the bridge. 
After rescuing his located the body, Mr. Moxie said, the ropes got out, got tangled, and he got in his boat to help to bring the body out. The body was placed on dock. The blood soaked into the wood and on the dock, and it was never washed away. It was there for about five years. I tore it down and built another. Another man born with and raised within half a mile of the bridge moved away for many years, came back, parked his car by the foot of the bridge, and shot himself. I don't think the bridge is jinxed. Maybe it's just the name that brings him here, Mr. Moxie said of the suicides. In a more recent incident, Dave Nickerson, who at the, who at the time lived across the creek next to the bridge, was awakened one morning by the calls of help. Help. Seeing a car parked on the bridge, he immediately jumped into his skiff and zoomed to where calls were coming from. Um, he pulled a woman from the icy water where she had apparently changed her mind about committing suicide. Nickerson immediately drove, took her ashore, ran to her car, which was running, and drove off the skiff. When he tried to get the woman into the warm car, she replied, I don't want to get seats wet. It's a new car. Oh my god. <laughs> Me? And yeah, that's it. That was that was a good one too. Lots of lots of gallows this episode. Did you guys yeah. notice? Yeah. yeah, lots of gallows. Um, I mean, don't, a sign. don't have those anymore. Um, so yeah, if you wanna pick up any of these books, go Stories of Saskatchewan. I got it at a used bookstore. Go check out your used bookstore for one. Murder and Mayhem Canadian Ghost Stories I got at a gas station in Manitoba. So go there and see if you can pick one out. And Haunted Eastern Shore Ghostly Tales from the East of the Chesapeake. I got shipped to me by my friend Dylan. So get your friend Dylan to send you a copy. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Instagram at The Woods Podcast. Angelo? Twitter at The Woods Podcast. It's actually at Woods Podcast. At Woods Podcast. And email us at at the woods podcast at gmail. Yes, at gmail.com. Yes. We would like to thank yes. uh, Jason Shaw for our theme running waters, and we would like to thank Backwoods Barcast for the promo at the beginning of the episode. Follow them, give them some love, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I'm ready to eat food. <laughs>